Whether you're making the same breakfast that you have every day or baking a cake for an extra special day, eggs are a staple in our diets. Eggland's best eggs are nutritionally superior to ordinary eggs, containing more vitamins and 25% less saturated fat. Not only are they better for you, but Eggland's best eggs taste better too. There's a reason that they're America's number one eggs. Visit egglandsbest.com for additional information and delicious recipes. On this episode of Plant Killers, we'll explore one nation's most notorious fruit and vegetable killer, bad dirt. What makes bad dirt so bad? The answer, the ingredients. But fear not, true crime enthusiasts. This story has a happy ending. New miracle Grow organic raised bed in garden soil. It's made with quality organic ingredients from upcycled green waste like compost and aged bark. Unlike the other guys who can't say the same. Looks like bad dirt's murdering days are over. Thanks to miracle Grow. Join us next time on Plant Killers. Welcome to True Crime Garage. Wherever you are, whatever you are doing, thanks for listening. I'm your host, Nick, and with me as always, he is the proud new owner of a pet polywog. He is the very nurturing and caring captain. Welcome to the Upside Down. I mean, welcome to Parts Unknown. It's good to be seen, and it's good to see you. This week, we are drinking Julius by the fine people over at Treehouse Brewing Company, garage grade, four and a half bottle caps out of five. Bursting with American hops, Julius is a bright and juicy beer filled with flavors of mango, peach, passion fruit, and citrus juices. Adam Carolla loves the passion fruit. And Julius was brought to us by these great garage people. First up, we have a big shout out to Sarah and her husband, two wonderful Buckeyes, Living in Benton, Kentucky. And from Indian Lake, Ohio, we have Mommy Dearest. We also have Summer in Houston, Texas. And also in Texas, we have Megan in Plano. And a big We Like Your Jib to Rachel in Cleveland, Ohio. And last but not least, we have a shout out to Hannah, who says hello from Scotland. She's in Midlothian. So thank you very much, Hannah. And thanks to everybody else for filling up the fridge for this week. If you want to buy us around for next week's show, go to TrueCrimeGarage.com and click on the donate button. And the Parts Unknown shirts will be shipped out this week, so thank you for everybody that pre-ordered those. Much love to you. All right, Captain, that's enough of the business. Everybody gather around, grab a chair, grab a beer. Let's talk some true crime. This is the case of a body in Kentucky. Thank you. 
May 17, 1968, near Georgetown, Kentucky. Wilbur Riddle arrived for work at a drill site. As he waited for his boss, he wandered around. Wilbur sees what he describes as a bundle. It was something wrapped up in a canvas tarp-like material and secured with rope. Wilbur decided he would open it and see what was inside. He gets the rope off and then he starts to pull open the tarp. The bundle begins to take shape and it's starting to look like a human body. Wilbur, deciding he wants nothing more to do with what he has found, he jumps in his truck and he leaves. He drives to the nearest telephone and notifies the sheriff. When the sheriff met Wilbur at the scene, he quickly confirmed Wilbur had in fact found the dead body of a young woman. Who was this woman? How did she die? Where is she from? Who killed her? And who put her here? Our story starts on a Friday, Captain. This is May 17th, 1968. We have Wilbur Riddle. He's a water well driller. Try to say that three times fast. He arrived for work at a drill site. This is near Georgetown, Kentucky, just off of Interstate 25. So when Wilbur arrives for work, he finds a note from his boss asking him to wait until the boss returns before he starts drilling for the day. So... Wilbur Riddle, he's there, and now he's got nothing to do but wait. And I love this name. I love the name Wilbur Riddle. It sounds like like a name out of some kind of children's novel or something. Mm -hmm. Wilbur sees some telephone workers. Uh, They are replacing the old-style glass insulators up on the telephone poles. Wilbur knows someone that collects and sells these glass insulators. These these things, these are all things that uh, all of us have seen at some point. You know, some people have turned these things into decorative fixtures in their homes, bars, and restaurants. They're shaped like like little bells, like a little glass bell. Mm. Uh, some are decorative, some are clear, some are colored glass. Most of the time, people have turned these into like vases or lighting fixtures or other like knick-knacky type things. So he goes off for where the telephone workers have been discarding these And he starts to gather them up. Now, this is a dirt road off of the interstate. There is a creek. Wait, hold on a second. I think I've heard a country song about this. (laughs) There's a creek and there's an embankment there as well. Wilbur sees something and he's got to go over and investigate. Mm -hmm. He sees a bundle. What? It's rolled up. It's like an old green tarp or an old uh, green canvas type material which is wrapped up and it's secured with a rope. And he says it, it appears to be about five feet long. Okay. Now let's put yourself in his shoes. Okay. What are you thinking right now when you see this bundle? Well, here's my thought. You know, he seems to be out there collecting these glass insulators anyway. Right. Um, you know, there are some people that are pretty crafty 
And they, you know, especially when he's showing up at all these job sites, you know, he probably mm. drives around and works at these different drill sites. And he probably often comes across old discarded material, which he may trade to people. Right. He may use for, to, you know, to build his own things. Um, so he's not, he's just going into it thinking, what is this? Yeah. And, and maybe I could sell this. I picture Wilbur showing up in a in a pickup truck, and if he finds anything or if there's any material left over from the work they're doing that he desires, he might take it home with him. Hmm. So if I'm Wilbur and if I'm that dude and, and I'm I'm that day and age doing that kind of thing, I'm going after this bundle. Okay. I'm going to open it up and see what what is inside. The thing that would deter me a little bit is the length you know he says it's about five feet long um he said that it took a little doing but he gets he starts pulling at the tarp um and he once he gets this thing open he said he pulls it just slightly open and it's like someone smacking him in the face he he jerks back there's a terrible odor that hits him now the tarp is still not completely unraveled at this point, but because he has unraveled a couple of its layers, whatever is in st- inside is starting to take shape. And he says it looks to Wilbur like there is a there might be a person in there. Right. Uh, someone had rolled up, like maybe someone had rolled up a lifeless body in this tarp and then dumped it off of this dirt road. So now Wilbur is obviously quite taken aback uh, and he's not so eager to unroll this bundle now. Right. So he kind of pushes on it with his foot. Well, this caused the bundle to roll down the embankment, down that like slight hill there. As it did, it unraveled a bit more. And judging by the shape, he was now convinced that it was in fact a dead body. That's w- gone rolling down the hill. Mm-hmm. Okay, that I, I mean, I don't mean to be insensitive, but it's like that would be my luck. Like, oh no, what what have I found? I think it might be a person, and then all of a sudden, they're going rolling down the hill. This pick, this to me is like a really bad episode of American Pickers. Yeah, you know, like <laughs> I know that they're being invited into barns and out in fields and things, but I keep wondering when are they going to find something like this all wrapped up maybe, in a tarp? Maybe they have. Well, they just couldn't resell it. Right. So it never made the show. They never made an offer on it. Well, this this freaks Wilbur out, rightfully so, and he runs to his truck and he drives to the nearest gas station where he places a call to the county sheriff. Well, and par- part of you would think that maybe I disrupted the scene a little bit, you know, because he accidentally hit the body with his foot and it went rolling down the hill. Mm-hmm. Well, the sheriff and his men respond to the call. Uh, they arrive at the location given to them by Wilbur Riddle. As they approach, Wilbur flags them down and leads them to his discovery. The coroner is called in. The men then cut the rope securing the bundle and open up the tarp. Now, I keep saying tarp because at the time, this is what most newspapers refer to this item as, that, it, that this body was wrapped up in some type of tarp. Okay. It's also been listed in more recent reports that this was a canvas-like material or possibly a canvas bag. But I'm going to go with what the original newspaper said, and so you'll hear me say the word tarp over and over again. But inside, they find the they find a nude body. It's a badly decomposed body of a young woman. 
Her right hand was clenched as if she tried to claw her way out of being wrapped up in this thing. Her eyes had rotted away and her flesh was badly deteriorated. You got to give people warnings. <laughs> I'm taking a drink of my beer and you just jump right into it. The ambulance uh, would would take the corpse to St. Joseph's Hospital in Lexington, Kentucky, where the coroner began the autopsy process. What do we know from the scene? From the scene, um, this is a bit of a remote area, let's say. Um, like we said, it's a dirt area. There's a creek nearby. It right. seems a little strange that maybe somebody could have had the ability to dump her in the creek if they had wished. But it sounds to me, my first impression, Captain, is that this is a spot where whoever placed this body there was expecting it to not be found for a good deal of time. Okay. It may have to be somebody that knew the area, but I guess because the interstate's right by, maybe not necessarily. Right, they could have got lucky. You, right. you could have ventured off and, and eventually found this spot. Right, but the, the victim... What do we know about the victim? Well, let's let's get into um, let's get into the autopsy because that's what's going to tell us uh, what what we will end up knowing about this victim. Okay. So here's what we learned from the autopsy: the the victim was a white female. Uh, the coroner believed her to be about 16 to 19 years of age. She stood five feet one inches tall, and she was about 110 pounds. Okay, so pretty petite. Mm -hmm. Somebody could easily carry that body by themselves. She had what's described as short reddish brown hair, mm -hmm. um, but no identifying marks or scars on her body. There was a slight discoloration of her skull, uh, but the autopsy showed no definite uh, cause of death. And there was no mm -hmm. trace of poison or toxic material in the girl's body. They could also estimate that uh, ab approximately when she had died, they believed that she had been dead for at least two weeks and maybe as many as four or five weeks. What's the deal with the discoloration of the skull? I don't know. That I think... Assuming that maybe she was hit or something, maybe struck on the skull and that that's why there would be a discoloration. Well, and, that, and you're right, because that's eventually what authorities would tell newspaper reporters, saying that they thought that the girl was knocked unconscious by a blow to the head mm -hmm. and then tied up in this tarp uh, in which she would have died a slow death by way of asphyxiation. So now with her being dead, with the estimate of her being dead for two weeks to maybe as many as four or five weeks, this would put her death between the middle of April and up until the first few days of May. Right. If she had been dead for four or five weeks, whoever placed her there, like you said, could have gotten lucky if, if in fact, they were hoping that she wouldn't be found for a good deal of time. Yeah, if they didn't know the area. You know, yeah. They got lucky because they found a spot that was so remote that she wasn't found for weeks. Well, and the obvious thing here is they don't know who this girl is. You know, there's there's no there's nothing on her body to identify her. She's nude. There's basically f they find nothing inside the tarp with her except for uh, what is described as a uh, white piece of towel, a mm -hmm. small piece of towel. Um, so no no identification. And there's no towny girl missing. No purse. Yeah, and they don't have any local girl that's missing that fits this description. Mm -hmm. Now, as we said, the body was was badly decomposed by this point. 
uh, too badly decomposed to pull prints from the fingertips. Wow. But now this is kind of a genius idea. I've, I've actually not heard of this, but, but having read through this case, I'm wondering if this was something that might be a little more common that we're just not aware of. The genius idea here is that they removed one of the girl's fingers and they soaked it in some kind of chemical for about a week or so. And the idea here is that once it, once it becomes saturated, that they would be able to pull a print uh, from the finger. Okay. Uh, which they end up doing, but they have nothing on file to connect this with. Right, right, right. So meanwhile, while this finger is soaking in this chemical for a week or so, they're, they're going to focus on that green tarp and the rope that was used to tie it up and that small piece of a white towel that was found inside the tarp. All of these items were examined and sent off to the FBI lab uh, for further examination. Well, and it's 68, right? So we don't have a lot of communication between different law enforcement. Mm. It's really hard for them to put out, you know, one email and get a bunch of missing girl pictures back. Yes. Yes. And that's why some of these old cases are so fascinating because we get to see the real tough, uh, detective work at hand, uh, and how things can go, can go right when people really try to really try to get together and work on something. Now the, the Kentucky post and Times star, uh, this is a newspaper because the, the body of the girl was unclaimed and unidentified. Mm-hmm. They nicknamed her the tent girl because of the tarp. Yes. It was like a tent like material. And I think that's something cool by the newspapers there. I don't, I don't love the name, but the cool thing here is the thought is that whatever that material was that she was wrapped up in might be your biggest lead right. at this point as to finding out who she was. Well, and you wonder if there's any prints on that. Yeah. Because this would be a material that you would assume would uh, handle prints well. Yeah. So the investigators are, obviously dealing with all of the obvious questions. Who is she? They've kind of come up with how she died. Uh, It seems to be a plausible explanation. And so, again, that is that she was hit in the head. She was knocked unconscious. Then they wrapped her in the tarp alive. Mm -hmm. I say they, but, you know, whoever it was, wrapped her in the tarp alive, and then she died from asphyxiation in the tarp, which, I mean, what a horrible way to go. Which is either planned or maybe the person didn't know that she hadn't died at that point. Yeah, maybe they just assumed. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So, like I said, it looks like out of all those questions, they've only really answered one. We have a, a decent idea of how she died. Uh, so this is a homicide investigation because of they believe her to have been killed, but, but mainly because of the way that she's found. You know, when you find somebody wrapped up in a tarp like that and dumped off in a remote area, it's pretty obvious that that somebody led to this girl's demise. And this is a homicide investigation. So we need the first step. The first puzzle to solve is obviously who is she? Um, Without this information, we will likely never know who killed her and placed her body there where Mr. Riddle had found it. So introducing Harold Musser. He's a 40-year-old policeman who is also a talented artist, often called upon to sketch unidentified murder victims and suspects as well. The the sheriff's office asked Harold to get involved, and he did. He spent several days viewing photos of the tent girl's remains. 
And then he produced a sketch of her to be used in hopes of learning her identity. The sketch is of an attractive short haired girl with an obvious flaw between two of her upper front teeth. The sketch appeared in the region's newspapers uh, and people were responding to the sketch within a day or two. Detectives were swamped by inquiries from people throughout the Midwest and the South who thought they knew the tent girl. So this drawing is going to establish some leads, right? And, but the, the curious thing here is it's, it's interesting that we have this Harold Musser who has to spend several days viewing photos of the girl's remains um, to come up with this sketch. That's just something that, you know, I know that he's a seasoned police officer, mm-hmm. so he's probably seen his share of action and, and things that he probably didn't want to see. Um, but to spend a few days looking at the remains to come up with this sketch is something I'm glad that I will never be asked to do. Yeah. I think some people, they either have it in them or they don't, mm-hmm. you know I mean? There's, photographer friends of mine that I know that have got into wanting to take crime scene photos. Okay. And I couldn't do that. Right. I mean, if you have a fight or flight mentality, so like when I watch a gory movie, like I love Texas Chainsaw Massacre, the first one, but I think that's more psychological. And then when they started remaking Texas Chainsaw Massacre, it becomes such a gory film Mm -hmm. that I have a hard time watching it because my body naturally just turns away. My head naturally turns away. I don't even want to see it. Well, here's the other strange thing too. You know, within a day or two of this sketch coming out and hitting the newspapers, detectives are swamped by people coming forward saying that they think that they know this girl. So this sketch seemed to resemble everyone's missing daughter, niece, or someone that they knew. Now, obvious discrepancies like height, weight, age, and dental structure would immediately rule out many of the leads that were coming in. And was short hair that popular in 68? I would guess that it would be. Um, maybe amongst that group, that age group, 16 to 19. Mm-hmm. So one by one, they are eliminating the possibilities. They're eliminating, promising you know, the possibilities of these leads due to, like I said, height, weight, or age discrepancy. But a promising lead surfaced on June 7th in 1969 when a lieutenant received a phone call from a detective in Maryland. The detective told the lieutenant, I think I've got the name of your tent girl. I've been searching for a missing 15-year-old girl and there's a strong, very strong resemblance between her and the sketch. He said that the tent girl's name is Debbie Crane and her mother nearly fainted when she saw the sketch of the tent girl. Hmm. Debbie Crane is a 15-year-old girl. She is from Pasadena, Maryland. She's five foot tall, last seen wearing a brown skirt and a gold-colored blouse and a light blue coat. Where did she go missing from? She went missing near her home. She has um, brown hair. Uh, So we're seeing some... We're seeing some similarities here right we have the height is correct the hair is is very close well the height is close yeah Mm -hmm. within an inch so the detective is pointing out all of the details and um like we said they more or less matched now debbie debbie crane was last seen on march 3rd of 1968 she was getting into a blue chevrolet corvair 
with a 22 Corvair. Corvair, yes. Lesser stepbrother um, of the Corvette. I don't know. The, the Corvair was around for, for a long time. I don't know where it falls into the uh, to the mix there. Maybe it's more like a Monte Carlo kind of in yeah, that, there's that some, range. There's a car guy right now just screaming. You're idiots. <laughs> you, guys are idiots. you guys are in a garage and you don't know anything about cars. Hey, we claim to be in a garage and we also claim to be idiots. <laughs> okay, so she's last seen March 3rd. Mm-hmm. Uh, getting into a blue Chevrolet Corvair with a 21-year-old uh, boy. This is Floyd Colby and 17-year-old Carl Colby, their brothers. Mm-hmm. Um, both were regarded as quote-unquote undesirables. Uh, this is What's Debbie's. This is Debbie's mother stating that the two boys were undesirables. Um, adding that she believed that her daughter, as the two boys, were using some type of narcotics. And Carl, the 17-year-old, was Debbie's boyfriend. Mm-hmm. It's believed by the families, um, by both the Colby family and the Crane family, that the two brothers, uh, Floyd and Carl and little Debbie, were going to Kentucky. In fact, an area that was just about an hour away from where the tent girl's body was found. Well, this is all lining up. Yes, it is. And we will get right back to this after this quick beer break. The evidence keeps pouring in. At this point, the facts are undeniable. It's an open and shut case. Monopoly Go is the most fun you can have in a mobile game. Everyone is still talking about Monopoly Go for a good reason. It is an absolute hit. Millions of people pass Go every day because this game is always bringing something new to the table. Like countless crazy tournaments, you can join with your friends as partners or teams. Or timed events, offering bonuses like massive multipliers or rent frenzies to help you get huge rewards. And there's so many rewards to discover. Rare stickers you can trade with friends to complete albums. Delightful emojis to taunt people with when you raid their riches. Unique playing pieces and so much more. The verdict is in. With Monopoly Go, there's something new to discover every time you play. So don't miss out. Go download it now free on the App Store and Google Play. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. We all carry around different stressors, big and small. When we keep them bottled up, it can start to affect us negatively. Therapy is a safe space to get things off your chest and to figure out how to work through whatever's weighing you down. If you're thinking of starting therapy, I highly recommend that you give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online, designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and switch therapists anytime for no additional charge. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com garage today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash garage. This show is proudly sponsored by BetterHelp. Check out BetterHelp.com slash garage today. Do you want to set your child up for success? Of course you do. That's why you need to check out IXL Learning today. IXL Learning is an online learning program for kids covering math, language arts, science, and social studies. IXL 
is designed to help them really understand and master topics in a fun way. It's powered by advanced algorithms. IXL gives the right help to each kid, no matter the age or personality. There's one site for all kids in your home pre-K to 12th grade. Kids could use it at home on their computer or on an app on your phone or a tablet. No more grading those worksheets. IXL grades everything for you. One in four students in the U.S. are learning with IXL. IXL is used in 95 of the top 100 school districts in the U.S. I love recommending IXL learning. Kids can learn at home or on the go. And all my friends and family that are using it absolutely love it because it's so easy to set up and so easy to use. And even the kids that I've recommended it to their parents have told me, hey, Captain, thank you. I was having problems in math and my parents couldn't help me, but IXL could. Do you want to get your kids back on track or do you just want to get your kids ahead? Do so with IXL Learning. Make an impact on your child's learning. Get IXL now. And True Crime Garage listeners, get an exclusive 20% off IXL membership when you sign up today at IXL.com garage. Visit IXL.com garage to get the most effective learning program out there at the best price. Check out IXL.com garage today. Warmer, sunnier days are calling. Fuel up for them with factors, no prep, no mess meals. Meet your wellness goals in time for summer thanks to the menu of chef-crafted meals with options like Calorie Smart, Protein Plus, and Keto. Factor's fresh, never-frozen meals are dietitian approved and ready to eat in just two minutes. So no matter how busy you are, you'll always have time to enjoy nutritious, great-tasting meals. With 35 different meals and more than 60 add-ons to choose from every week, you'll always have new flavors to explore. Crush your wellness goals this May with dietitian approved meals and ingredients that you can trust. Make your day delicious from breakfast to dessert. Stay fueled with easy, nutritious options. Treat yourself to restaurant-quality meals that feature premium ingredients like filet mignon, shrimp, and blackened salmon. I am new to Factor, and I have been loving every minute of it. I have a problem, and it's called lunch. Some days I need a pack of lunch, and some days I work from home. Whether I'm at home or whether I'm on the go, Factor is fueling my lunch from now on. Head to factormeals.com slash truecrimegarage50 and use code truecrimegarage50 to get 50% off your first box, plus 20% off your next month. That's code truecrimegarage50 at factormeals.com slash truecrimegarage50 to get 50% off your first box, plus 20% off your next month while your subscription is active. All right, cheers, mates. Thanks for sharing the cases on social media. It means a lot. Yeah, and here we are. We're still trying to figure out the identity of the tent girl who was found in mid-May of 1968. By this Mm -hmm. point in our story, it's been a little over a few weeks, and they're still trying to figure out who she is. But we have a solid lead now. We got a good lead coming from a detective in Maryland who says, I've been looking for a 15-year-old girl, Debbie Crane, since March 3rd of this year. 
So if in fact it's the same person, well, then that would put, you know, he's been looking for this girl for three months by this point. So here's what they decide to do. The detectives, the local detectives investigating the tent girl case, they requested Debbie Crane's dental records. Now these records were obtained and they were sent to them. Uh, and they proved to be similar to that of the tent girl's teeth. Interesting. The, so the details in this case, they match, but then again, they don't match entirely. So what is our next step? Well, we need, they need to get the, the parents, Debbie Crane's parents to venture to Kentucky to try to make a proper identification of this body right. to see if in fact it is Debbie Crane. But it's very badly decomposed. So yes. this is going to be difficult. It on, is on going the to be family, definitely for sure. Well, on June 13th, Velma Crane and Debbie's aunt, they arrived in Georgetown, Kentucky. Mm-hmm. They spent about two hours examining photos of the quote unquote tent girl, but they were unable to make a positive identification. As you said, this was going to be difficult. They stated that the body is too badly decomposed for Mrs. Crane to be sure that it is her daughter. I wonder what her gut feeling was. Well, it sounds to me like she was leaning on the side of it was her daughter. Really? Um, and here's the thing. You got to put yourself in her shoes. It's been, it's been three months. Yeah. You know, it's actually, yeah, it's been over three months and you've not heard from your daughter. And this girl looks like her. The, the, the dental records are very similar. Oh, she got in the car with two gentlemen that were heading. I don't know if I should call them gentlemen. Well, once um, her, one was her, thought to be her boyfriend and her boyfriend's older brother. Right. But, but they, but they, they were undesirables. Like, right. But they suspected them going to Kentucky. Yeah. You say there's a girl missing from Maryland. I go, well, chances are this is not her. Mm-hmm. But the fact that these suspects were possibly going to Kentucky, then I go, okay, well, now that's starting to make more sense. I feel for the parents that had to look at, you know, at Tank Girl and and not be able to identify whether or not it was their child. Well, yeah, this whole trip out there, this whole long drive out there, you're thinking, well, I don't want it to be her, but at least we'll have some answers. Yeah. You know, at least we'll know how to proceed, and hopefully we can go there and check it off our list that it is not her. Well, and think about how many missing person cases that we've covered. I mean, law enforcement that were looking for Brian Schaefer, for example, still look for him when they're on vacation. Yeah. Uh, so imagine what goes through the parents' mind of a missing child that is never found. Uh, how much torture that would be. So, again, it's like one of those things where you hope it's not them because you want to keep hope alive that they are alive. But at the same time, then at least... Uh, if they have passed on, you know it, and then you can let go of that to try to move on in a positive direction in your life. The Kentucky detectives, now armed with this information about the whole story about the Colby brothers and this De- Deborah Crane, right? Um, since they're not able to get the positive identification that they wanted, they decide that they're going to send out a national alert. A national alert was issued for the Colby brothers. And eventually a truck driver reported that two weeks before the tent girl's body was found was discovered that he had seen two hitchhikers near where she was found. Really? Then Mm. there's another tip that had came in. Um, This is from a motorist who had told the sheriff 
that he picked up two hitchhikers in that same vicinity. One was a girl wearing a short dress and a gray sweater. And the motorist said that he was sure that she was the tent girl. Okay. He told the sheriff, she and the guy with her, they kept arguing as we drove south. I got tired of listening to it, so I stopped and I made them get out. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, I mean, it's his hey, truck. If, you yeah, know? and if you're going to hitch a ride, be, be yeah. polite. Yeah, stop arguing. Pipe down. But, you know, that's something that maybe, uh, you know, a, a late teenage couple, you know, 16, 17, 18, that wouldn't be able to control themselves from arguing. Yeah. You know, because everything at that point in your life is such a big deal. Well, he tells the sheriff that when he last saw the two, that they had crossed the interstate highway and they were trying to hitch a ride back north to the Georgetown, Kentucky area. Mm. He said that the boy had long hippie style hair and the girl appeared to be frightened. Then another tip came in. This time it is a caller that would like to remain anonymous. Wait, but hold on. Let's go with this frightening thing for a second. It's pretty unlikely that somebody would capture somebody, kidnap somebody, and then hitchhike with them. Mm-hmm. So maybe she, was, you know, she obviously knew this individual, right? And and she was maybe frightened because maybe he was violent towards her when other people weren't around. Yeah, maybe she was only frightened because they were arguing. The way he makes it sound is she seemed frightened, as if like she was kidnapped or something. Yeah, I, I I think that it's the short. We're getting the short version of this story. Uh-huh. Um, we're not getting the full details that 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 took place between this caller, between the motorist and the sheriff's department, and it's probably more detailed to the point where they're saying, you know, they, yeah, they were together. You know, this this young boy and this well, this young man and this young woman were together. Obviously. They were arguing about something, probably relationship type stuff. Right. And maybe she was, like I said, only frightened because they were arguing because they were not getting along. No, but Tent Girl wasn't sexually assaulted, right? Not that they could tell. Right. So, I mean, that that becomes a mystery to me because you got to tr- try to figure out what the motive is. And and once you take out, you know, sexual assault or, or rape, then, I mean, this narrows the field down quite a bit. And sometimes, sometimes with these cases, when you're going through the autopsy or when, well, I should, shouldn't say going through the autopsy because what we are doing in this case, sometimes we have the autopsy. Other times we have what has been reported as the findings of the autopsy. And that's what we're doing in this case. So when you have that, a lot of times, Captain, you know, when, when they don't say, when they don't outwardly say she was sexually assaulted or she was not sexually assaulted. Right. Then you're left with two assumptions. Either one, it couldn't be determined because we spoke about the the decomposition of the body or that it couldn't be ruled out. You know, so it, you know, it might not be it just might not be known because of the state that the body was found. Well, that makes things pretty difficult as far as the investigation goes. So the interesting thing here though with these two callers is these two tips kind of line up because you have in the exact same area, you have one caller saying, well, I saw two people, a young man and a young woman. They were hitchhiking. They were looking for a ride in this area. Mm -hmm. Then you have another motorist that comes along and says, Hey, I picked up two hitchhikers and it was in this area matching with the other caller stating that, you know, 
We drove south. They're arguing the whole time. I got sick of hearing it. I asked them to get out of the vehicle. And then they crossed the street, and they're trying to hitchhike another ride. And he said it looked like they were trying to go back up north to the Georgetown area where her body was eventually found. The tent girl's body was eventually found. Strange that they would hitchhike south and then immediately try to go back up north, but who knows what they were arguing about. Yeah. I mean, they could have been arguing about where they're going to go or what they're going to do for whatever reason. There's another tip that comes in. Uh, And like I said, this time the caller would like to remain anonymous. It's a male caller. So would I. With a rough and low voice. He, He says, Debbie Crane ain't the tent girl. If you want to find her, go to Bradford, Pennsylvania. Then the caller hung up the phone. Okay, okay. Go back. Repeat that for me again. Okay. We have an anonymous caller calls in on the tip line. Right. Now, mind you, th- this is a call reacting to the national alert that had been issued for the two Kobe brothers. Right. This for caller. De- for Debbie Crane. This caller has a rough, low voice, very obviously a male caller who wants to remain anonymous. And he says, Debbie Crane ain't the tent girl. If you want to find her, go to Bradford, Pennsylvania. And then the phone hung up. All right, Bradford, we go. Here we we go to Bradford. Yeah. Now let's go. It's the middle of June. And the detectives went out to Pennsylvania looking for Debbie Crane, uh, dead or alive. Well, they end up finding her. This this is very strange, Captain. They find Debbie Crane. Uh, Dead or alive. She is alive and well. Living with her boyfriend. This is Carl Colby. Really? Who she was last seen with. She tells the detectives that they never even went to Kentucky. That they had been in Pennsylvania the entire time. uh, That they had went there because they knew that they had a place to stay and possibly a place to live. Right. Uh, They were planning to get married. The young couple, because they were both still minors, they were forced to go back to Maryland. So good news for the Crane family and everyone that was looking and worried about 15-year-old Debbie Crane. But now the police from multiple jurisdictions across multiple states have spent a lot of time, effort, and expense. And still we have not identified the young woman's body that was found over a month ago. And I keep bringing it up. This is 1968. So I think that's important because when we hear about uh, a girl and her boyfriend running off to possibly go get married. When we think of that in today's terms, we go, wow, these these kids must have been crazy. Right. But it wasn't that uncommon. I mean, in 68, once you graduated high school, you're either going to college or you're, getting, you're going into a career. And probably a big percentage, 70, 80% of uh, kids were becoming career men and starting a family by the age of, you know, 19, 20. Yeah, you're you're exactly right because we have young women getting pregnant around this, you know, around that time in their life after yeah. high school. Um and it's also 68. You have that the bit of that hippie movement is starting to take place where people some people are flocking out to California. And I think, you know, not just free, me free love, man. Free love, man. Far out. Far- we're, remember, we we talked about that uh, that scene from a movie when we pictured these p- girls hitchhiking, where it's, uh, the car pulls up and it's, where are you going, San Francisco, far yeah. out, man, and then far they just out, yeah. they just get into some car r- willy nilly and then they're never seen again. Yeah, or it's like a bunch of people and they have little guitars and they're like, we're going to San Francisco too. 
you know, <laughs> like that was the thing. Well, and, and not just me backing you up, but the story itself, the evidence in the story itself backs up everything that we're saying here, because within days of putting this girl's sketch in the newspaper, they're getting swamped with calls that they have to immediately say to the, to the caller, uh, what she's five foot six. Well, that's not our girl. Right. Anyway, how are we going to identify this victim? How are we going to identify this girl that they've dubbed the, the tent girl? So around the same time that they found Debbie crane alive, the lab test results from the FBI came back. All three of the items that were sent, the tarp, the rope and the towel. Well, they were all figured to be all of a common make so massively produced and distributed, making it nearly impossible. Well, let's just say impossible for the sources to be located where these items had come from. Right. Right. So we're running out of leads here, captain. By now the detectives in the sheriff's office, they got to, they got to be starting to feel pretty crappy here. They're, they're running into dead ends and this case is starting to look like it may turn cold. Then a new lead comes in. This time is this time it is from a police chief in Pennsylvania. And we got Pennsylvania here yeah. again in the story. Hmm. But this is a very different kind of lead. Nothing like this in this investigation had been seen before. The police chief was not looking to locate a missing teenage girl. Okay. No, he had a dead body. A, he had a homicide case that they were working on. The issue is this. The girl found dead in Pennsylvania. The circumstances were strikingly similar to that of the tent girl. The victim's name is Candace Clothier, a 16-year-old girl from Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. She disappeared from her home around 8.30 p.m. on Saturday, March 9th, 1968. Now, she went by the nickname of Candy. She was known to be a quiet, attractive, and respectable girl, according to the local detectives. Now, Candy was supposed to be walking from her home down to a stop to get onto one of those trolleys. Mm -hmm. She was going to take the trolley to her boyfriend's house, but she never arrived that night. She was never seen. Mm. At some point, uh, she is reported missing that like night. Tony Muncy thing. Yeah. Yeah. So somehow a conversation happens between her parents and her boyfriend, and they decide to report her missing. Her father was a um, well-respected fireman. I think he might have been a little higher up the ranks than what I just described him as. But a chief. He, yeah, he. I mean, he was. In, he worked for the fire department, and so we have a situation where we have many firemen and policemen were combing the area that night and the following morning near her home, mm-hmm. looking for the missing girl. Unfortunately, she wasn't found until the early morning hours of April 13th, 1968. So over a month later, now three fishermen discovered her body in a creek in Bucks County, Pennsylvania. Well, and what's difficult here is that if she got on the trolley, then the possibilities for suspects are almost endless. Yeah. You know? Yeah. And the, the body was tied up in a black canvas bag that had washed up onto a small island. Okay. The body itself, it was nude except for a pair of panties. She had been dead for about six weeks, uh, but was quickly identified. Was there sexual assault? That I don't know. 
the thing here is, Captain, she was quickly identified because of one thing we were lacking from the tent girl case. There was a missing report. Right. She had been reported missing in the area. They were actively looking for Candace. Well, by late June, the Philadelphia detectives had interviewed more than 1,000 persons and administered more than 80 polygraph tests, but they were unable to make an arrest. And a strange thing that they came up with during this investigation, Captain, it's a it's a little chilling here. Uh, Candace had written a poem for the the upcoming yearbook that was coming out at her high school. She went to Abraham Lincoln High School. Okay. Uh, she was scheduled to graduate the following year, 1969. But she had wrote a poem, and it, and it goes like this. If life were merely passing by, I hold my breath and give a sigh. But that's not the true story I fear. This life of mine goes on for years. I'm tired of eating, drinking, and sex. I just can't wait for the world that's next. If you're wondering where this next world is, it's the place where our God lives. So a strange... What? Yeah. Isn't that kind of... make? It kind of makes the hair on the back of your neck stand up. Because First of all, are they going to publish this? It's strange that she has the word sex in there and she's underage. Um, and it, it, well, that's not strange. But what's strange is that they'd publish it. It was in the yearbook. Yeah. Was it, yeah, but okay, so that's, you know, because it's so long ago, was it actually published in the yearbook or did she write it in somebody's yearbook? You know, it could be. Oh, I see what you're saying. Because if she just wrote it in somebody's yearbook, it's not oh, that weird I, that she used the word sex. I see what you're saying. The, the news article that I read gave me the impression that it was something that was submitted and printed in all of the books, not mm-hmm. something that she wrote. But you could be right. This could right. be something that she actually just wrote in somebody's uh, yearbook. Regardless, though, it sounds almost like a, a goodbye note. Yes. Yes, it does. But yeah, just, but just one of those weird things that you come up with when you know in these different cases. Well, and the other thing too is since we don't have the information of her autopsy, it's like other than her being wrapped in this uh, almost like a tarp like material the same as tent girl. That's like pretty much the only similarities, similar uh, size of person. And that's about it. Well, let's get into that because the detectives, they, they started comparing the two cases and they noted the following. The autopsy findings were the same in both cases. Uh, Like you said, there was no identify. There was no identifiable cause of death in either case. Both bodies showed a slight discoloration of the skin covering the skull in about the same spot. This is on the right-hand side mm-hmm. of the skull. Both corpses were wrapped in a canvas-type bag or tarp and then tied with rope from top to bottom. Right. Both bodies had also been dumped off of main roads near creeks, uh, the, the one body actually in uh, water that had you know, washed up onto this little island. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And both had remained undiscovered for several weeks. The other thing, too, is the both of the girls' legs, in both situations, the legs were bent at the knee and kind of tucked up underneath of them, mm-hmm. uh, if that makes sense. So you have two girls that are basically found with no obvious cause of death, no cause of death that could be found by the coroner. They, well, bo- and- they both appear to have been hit on the head. Po- yeah, possibly. And Tent Girl looks like that she was possibly alive still. Was there any evidence in in this case? That she was still alive when they wrapped her in the tarp? 
They never said that. They didn't say that they believed her to have been left alive. Well, she might have had more bruising on her skull than Tank Girl. And the problem that they're going to have with Candace's case, um, you know, I think she was found. it, It took longer to find her. Okay, so then with the toxicology reports. there, Well, that that was an issue with the Candace case. Um, I think that she was beyond that, that they weren't able to recover anything as far as right. toxicology went. Well, I just also argued that there was new drugs coming out, and, and I would argue that the testing back then wasn't as good as it is now. Mm-hmm. So who knows what was in either one of their systems. Well, of course, their thought is going to be if the cases were, in fact, connected, then the strategy is that since we know that Candace Clothier is from Pennsylvania, well, then maybe our unidentified victim is from Pennsylvania as well. Right. So the Kentucky detectives, they sent copies of the sketch to the boys investigating the Clothier homicide in Pennsylvania. There they compared it to all of their outstanding missing girls and young women cases they found no match. There was there was nobody that resembled the tent girl that they had listed as missing in the Pennsylvania area. These two cases were both still being investigated to great length, both as connected cases and as individual cases. Well, the 60s was such a crazy time. I mean, if somebody said to me I could go visit a time period for a week, mm-hmm. I think the 60s would be a lot of fun. Uh, crazy time with, you know, JFK being assassinated. You have Martin Luther King's assassination. You have Robert Kennedy's assassination. You have a lot of um, political talk going on. You have a lot of people experimenting with different ways of living. Uh, you know, like we talked about the free love movement and a lot of people just just packing up and moving somewhere else, trying yep. something different. I mean... Like Kid Rock, I'm packing up my things and I'm headed, going to head out west. Right. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) sorry for that i apologize how many people actually just packed their stuff up and left their families or you know told them where i'm heading out or didn't tell them they're heading out Mm -hmm. and how many people were not reported missing right you're well you're asking how rare that is if it would be a rare thing i don't think it was that rare i'm with you i don't think it was that rare either i think that when you have a situation where people are choosing to move and choosing to up and leave at that age, right? there's probably, at least in the young person's mind, there's good reason to do so um, to the point where they may not feel like they should reach out to mom and dad and say, hey, went to Wyoming, planning on living here forever. Yeah, or I'm going to San Francisco because I want to try some drugs mm-hmm. and some free love. Well, the detectives are going to try some other avenues here. They're not going to give up on identifying their victim, whether or not she is connected to the Pennsylvania girl. So there's this old magazine. It's well, it's old magazine now. Back then it was <laughs> current, it was new. Um, but it was called Master Detective. So the detectives, they decided to talk to this magazine and see if they would cover the story. Master Detective was very interested in covering the story. Uh, They wanted the story of this seemingly impossible to identify young female murder victim in their pages. So this is a great chance for the investigation because this could lead to a break in the case and maybe they could identify the girl. So Sheriff Vance, he was in charge at the time. He gave an interview to the magazine 
and said, if we could only identify the tent girl, I'm sure we would find whoever caused her death. Any reader in any state who has some idea of who she is, please contact us right away. It is quite possible that she was killed somewhere else and then brought here. We also have Lieutenant Roberts, who was working the case as well. He also added that he had hoped a master detective reader would come forward to solve the mystery, saying, although we are handicapped by the lack of good physical description of this girl, we have one obvious feature that someone may recall. That's the decay between the girl's two upper front teeth. Mm -hmm. It would have been apparent as a dark spot whenever she smiled. Anyone who knew her might recall this. He added that the print obtained from one of Tent Girl's fingers has routinely been compared with the prints of other missing girls. So stating that if we do come up with a possible identification, they would likely be able to get the fingerprints from the missing girls' effects, personal effects, so they can compare the prints. They just needed names of missing girls matching this description so they could look into these fingerprints. Well, yeah, they could start eliminating them one by one. Mm -hmm. Eventually, the unidentified murder victim that we now know as Tent Girl, well, she was eventually buried in a county-owned section of the Georgetown Cemetery in Kentucky. A bunch of the local people got together. They collected money to purchase and place a tombstone at her grave. That was nice of them. Yes. The the stone was complete with the sketch that was made of her, preserving what she probably looked like, and followed by these words. Tent Girl, found May 17th, 1968, on U.S. Highway 25. Died about April 26th to May 3rd, 1968. Age, about 16 to 19 years. Height, 5 feet 1 inch, weight 110 to 115 pounds, mm-hmm. reddish brown hair, unidentified. So it's almost like a missing person report. Right on that right, right on, on that headstone. headstone, yep. So, it, right, and the difficult thing here is, like I said before, is with the lack of evidence because of the decomposition of the body, what is the motive here? We don't know where she came from. We don't know what the motive is. There are so many uh, gray questions or gray areas. Yes. Yes. There, there's where once we look like we were receiving, we're receiving lots of good leads. Those leads all seem to have dried up that with the exception of there might be a possible connection between her and the victim from Pennsylvania. Yeah. But again, with both of those cases, there's so much lack of evidence that you don't even, what's the motive? What's Mm -hmm. the motive in that case? Right. You know, without there being, like I said, and I hate to keep bringing it up, but without their solid evidence that they were both um, sexually assaulted, where's the motive here? Well, in in the case of the tent girl, I mean, when you can't even identify her, there's no way you can come up with a motive because you you don't know if it was somebody that knew her, if it was well, right, but, if it was right. a stranger on stranger attack. And you're and you're right with the with the lack of evidence that's found on the body and at the crime scenes, it's not really pointing you in any direction either. Well, and maybe not in you know 1968, but as we're getting uh, more advanced with our um, technology, but also more advanced with the way we process these things and the psychology of fighting crime, 
if 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 Tank Girl was stabbed multiple times, then that might lead to the motive of you know at least it would be a passionate right mm-hmm. killing. And what does that mean? And does that mean that it was probably somebody closer to her? Because right. normally in these cases, especially when it's young females, it's the boyfriend or the husband. Right. Right. That's the first people that we look at. But well, here's the thing. Let, okay, let's let's investigate it like this. We have one thing that we can go off of as far as both victims having been found. Um, that of Candy in Pennsylvania and the tent girl in Kentucky. And this is kind of some loose science, let's say this. Mm-hmm. But a lot of investigators would agree with this statement as well as a lot of killers would agree with this statement. A lot of times it's believed that the harder it is to find a body the more likely that the person was close to the victim um, that knew the victim. And we can't say that that's the case all of the time. It certainly is not the case all of the time. Right. But the thought is this, that, you know, in a lot of stranger on stranger attacks where a serial killer may just pick somebody up or abduct somebody. A lot of times they'll just dump the body when they're done with it at the, on the side of some road. This, this body, the tent girl, as well as Candy's body in Pennsylvania, somebody took the time to wrap up the remains and drive them to remote locations and dump them in a place where they probably hoped that they would not be found or at least not be found for a good deal of time. Yeah, but they're both locations were right off the highway. You know what I mean? So it's like they're remote locations, but pretty easy to get to. Um, so is that just happenstance? That may be the case with Tent Girl, but it would be less the case with Candy in Pennsylvania. Um, And as far as, you know, here's the thing, though. But then we run into this obstacle, too. Just because it took a good deal of time to find them doesn't necessarily mean that they were there the entire time. Right. I guess I'm just going under the assumption that they were. That whoever placed these girls in these locations probably hoped that they would never be found or wouldn't be found for a good deal of time. And they got their wish on some, to some extent, because if they were placed there shortly after they were killed, then it was weeks before these bodies were located. Right. Or like you said, on the other hand, I mean, they could have had, um, they could have kept their victim somewhere. And then that was the final resting spot. Mm Mm-hmm. Well, so they were only there for maybe just a little bit. So, and that's hard too with the reporting because it seems like, well, if these uh, victims were sitting in a place for weeks and weeks and weeks, then that's, it's totally remote. Mm-hmm. But if, if they're found within a couple of days of, of them being dropped, then how do we know how remote this is? You well, know? we, we got a lot more to get to in this, obviously, captain, we got to figure out one who was the body that was found in Kentucky on that day in 68? And two, is there a connection to the other victim, to Candace in Pennsylvania? And we'll get to those on tomorrow's show. All right, thank you, everybody. Everybody have a great night. We'll see you back here tomorrow. And until then, be good, be kind, and don't litter. Drink your bourbon.
Whether you're making the same breakfast that you have every day or baking a cake for an extra special day, eggs are a staple in our diets. Eggland's best eggs are nutritionally superior to ordinary eggs, containing more vitamins and 25% less saturated fat. Not only are they better for you, but Eggland's best eggs taste better too. There's a reason that they're America's number one eggs. Visit egglandsbest.com for additional information and delicious recipes.